This podcast is proudly supported by Red Energy, awarded CanStar's most trusted energy providers nationally 2021 and 22. That's Red Energy. And Prince Wine Store, bringing wine enthusiasts the greatest wine in the world. Visit princewinestore.com.au. Back on the Essendon Football Club story, Caro. You and that club, what is it about you two? You know, like all clubs who suffer from major scandals, they don't just take years to overcome. They can take decades. What has haunted and really driven this story has been the man who has haunted the entire season, and that's Alistair Clarkson. And Lillian's looking at my face going, oh, darling, she's fine, she's fine. It's only milk. You know, well, okay. Anyway, I loved that, and I loved her generosity. Absolutely fabulous woman, and like anyone, who is a bit different. You know, she had her detractors and yet she just outshone them all. These puppies have grown up in a lockdown environment. They haven't learned to adjust socially to other dogs. The dogs are going out for a walk and attacking other dogs because they can't cope. Don't Shoot the Messenger podcast with Caroline Wilson and Corey Perkin. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Don't Shoot the Messenger. This is episode 231, and I am here with my dear friend, Caroline Wilson, who has had a very busy weekend on the football front. We'll talk about that in a moment, Caro. It sort of got really busy on Monday, Corrie, but you've also been very busy. A beautiful article about you in the Sunday Age by Jason Steger, the literary editor, With a big announcement. With a big announcement. I'll tell you about that in a second, but I have a couple of apologies, Caro. Well, I don't know whether this is an apology or a clarification. Well, Mm. actually, it's probably an apology. I think think clarification is apology. It's newspaper talk for for apology. Exactly. I know. I'll, I'll fess up. I'll use the right word. I'm deeply embarrassed. So my, thank you to my husband, Peter, who was walking the dog and listened to the podcast and came home and said, you've made two terrible errors, which was not a good start to the day or the marriage probably. The first one was um, when I referred to Nick Martin swimming the English Channel last week, I said he swam it in 11 minutes and 22 seconds. You meant hours. And Correct. I and neither you nor Miss Jane. No, well, well it's I can't embarrassing blame Miss Jane because she too. was sick and she wasn't here. But no, it was embarrassing for me, in fact. But isn't that ridiculous? Of course I meant 11 hours and 22 minutes. That would have been the fastest swim in the history of the world. In fact, you couldn't even if you had a little air float or something electric on your back, you wouldn't have been able to do it in that no, time. Kieran Perkins would have struggled, <laughs> definitely. So, sorry, Nick, I did mean 11 hours and 22 minutes, but I hope everybody understood what I was trying to say. And the second apology is, of course, when you were talking about famous duets, and I still can't get over the fact that you mentioned Hey Hey Paula. Well, it's just a little funny little aside. We all loved it at the time, <laughs> Ernie and Denise. Come anyway, on. I talked about um, Ike and Tina Turner's wonderful duet, and I said rivers, river deep, mountain wide. Of course, it's mountain Didn't high. Didn't you say high? No, I said wide. Oh, apparently, I, I, according to Peter. Anyway, I don't think there's serious <laughs> errors, Corrie. There's just clearly you meant eleven hours. I love the fact listening? that your husband doesn't listen to the podcast for weeks and then listens to one episode, walking mm. the dog to get the coffee, comes back and says, "Oh, well, you know, one thing, and then there's another thing." Anyway, that's it. So, any? Do you have any apologies? Absolutely none at this stage, although (laughs) after another episode of Footy Classified and um, smashing certain elements of the Essendon Football Club, probably some people think I should. No, no, I'm all good. I wanted to mention a potty and a a dear friend of the podcast and a friend of ours, Anne Hodges, who said, Hello, Karen Corey, thanks for the podcast, long-term listener. This is a long story, so bear with me. I'll cut to the chase, Anne, but earlier this week you were... uh, were 
listening to us and you were talking about um, your friend said that she, that her daughter and son-in-law, Sarah and Tom, had just been to a wedding on a Swedish island. And, of course, Anne looked up and said, I think that might have been actually Caro's. So it was the same wedding. So Sarah and Tom apparently were at your wedding. Wasn't Caro. it amazing? What a Tom, coincidence. Tom is my son-in-law Oscar's cousin and I met. There you go. They were two people I had not met before the wedding. Absolutely loved meeting them. But Melbourne and Sydney are villages, aren't they? So, well, it is funny. So Anne, Anne Hodges said that she's now put her friend Maggie onto the podcast, Small World. Thanks again. I often think of you both as I cook one of your recipes. I enjoy, I enjoy a wine that has been recommended or a book that's been read, currently reading Mother's Boy. Thanks so much. And really excited about the Sorrento Writers Festival next year. Corey, thank you, and so am I. And Keach39 via Instagram said, Repersuasion, which is my favourite Jane Austen book because of the nuance. One reviewer suggested that if you're going to give it a modern treatment, put it in a different setting or time. I completely agree. The issue I have is that it lays the story out on a plate for the viewer, leaving no room for the story to reveal itself. I think that's a really good point, Keach39. Thank you for that. Um, It was just really a bit of eye and light mental candy, wasn't it, really? It was, really. Yeah. And good for August, which is a pretty crappy month in Melbourne. It was enjoyable. Caro, yes, the Sorrento Writers Festival. So we announced that on the weekend that uh, that is my new um, my new invention. So this is Sorrento on the Mornington Peninsula, probably about an hour and 20 minutes on a good day from the Melbourne CBD, an hour and a half on a normal day and two hours in oh, peak hour. Four hours on a Friday night if um, you go down at five o'clock. You're... You've, you know, you've you've said in this interview with Jason Steger that you're pretty much you've based yourself down on the Mornington Peninsula now. You're living down there, which we know, and it's great that you come to Melbourne once in a while and Dana's with your presence to do podcasts and film nights and other don't shoot the messenger events and obviously see your family and friends. But um, well, you, I know this has been in the wings for you for some months. In fact, since you closed the bookshop, this was when you had the brainchild of a writers' festival, and I know you're heading up to Byron Bay to check out their writers' festival, where I've actually spoken at in the past, and I'm fascinated in how difficult these things are to set up, and I guess we'll hear a lot more over the coming months, and why you settled on Sorrento and the the dates that you settled upon. Yeah, Caro, as you remember, when I closed the bookshop bookshop last year, it was a pretty uh, awful time for me, and I wasn't ready to stop work and I wasn't ready to retire and there were a couple of nibbles of jobs of different things and I didn't really want to go back into the journalism or the communication space so what do you do but you invent yourself a job and so what we did was we established a not-for-profit company that will eventually pay its director who is me but at the moment we're pretty much doing things on the smell of an oily rag but that's okay because there's a lot of energy about it. The Sorrento area is and Portsea and Blegari and Rye, it's so rich in so much, as you know, Caro, so much sporting activity, great golf courses, some of the best in Australia, wonderful uh, water sports, um, walking, surfing, all of that sort of stuff. Not a lot happening culturally. Historic Society, of which we're both members. Lotsams, we are. And there's a great little bookshop called Antipodes that has a a good program of vocational speakers in writers and so on. It's been running for years. Running for years. And I know there are groups of gangs down there unofficially who go to the Sorrento Cinema on a Tuesday night. They have their own film clubs. But there really isn't anything of huge cultural substance or significance. Occasionally there's an art fair or something like that. 
So it just seemed to me to be the perfect place. And what it does is it brings, it's kind of like the sum total of my parts now. So when I had the bookshop, we ran an events program that was really vigorous, probably second or third behind readings and the Avenue Bookstore. And we we just set up these great relationships with writers and publishers and, and also the audiences who came pretty much always booked out toward the end there. So I just thought, can we bring that together and what can we do? And can I bring my contact book to do some good? So that's what we're going to do. And Cara, since we've been talking to people, like the enthusiasm, you've been there with me when people have said, oh my goodness, what a great idea. So the, the fact that everybody seems to be on board with this suggests that there's going to be a real buzz and it'll be April 27th to 30th next year. It will always be the weekend after Anzac Day because talking with the local traders... It does seem that everybody kind of, if they have a summer holiday house down there, everybody has their last hurrah at Easter and maybe they might extend it to the Anzac Day weekend and then they lock up and go home and they go home for the winter. If we can just get them to stay one more weekend, invite their friends down and obviously for the local community, they're coming out of school holidays so we'll have a big kids and families program as well. I think it's going to be great fun. So who do you, who are you hoping to lure Oh, I can't tell you that. But if people would oh, like to, if people would not like anyone, to, if people would like to keep in the loop with us, you can follow our weekly uh, events and things that are happening and announcements via the Instagram account, which is just Sorrento Writers Festival. And also, you can jump onto the website and sign up for uh, the newsletter. So it's www.sorrentowritersfestival.com.au and it will ask you, do you want to subscribe? That's just to receive the newsletter, nothing else, but it keeps you in the loop. And, um, and yeah, we'll be breaking news here on the podcast, Caro. Will it be, uh, can you buy a ticket for separate events or do you buy a ticket for the whole event? We're going to do both. So the Byron Bay Writers Festival is an interesting uh, example for us, Carol, an interesting model because you you buy a ticket for the day and you go from venue to venue. Ours are slightly different because we'll only have a couple of two or three venues running at the one time concurrently. So, uh, Notably so, the Continental Hotel. Correct. Recently reopened and refurbished. Correctly. Unbelievable venue. And they have come on board uh, with Gusto and we're so delighted to be using their spaces as well as other ones around town. So lots more on that. But yes, don't forget, join the Instagram account. Sorrento Writers Festival is the handle and um, and also sign up to the newsletter. And keep in touch with the podcast because we will be mentioning it. Now, that was my busy weekend, but what about your busy weekend back on the Essendon Football Club story, Caro? Well... <laughs> that yeah. You and that club, what is it about you two? Well, I mean, it's it's not me. It's um, what's happened at Essendon since the drug scan. And, you know, like all clubs who suffer from major scandals, they don't just take years to overcome. They take they can take decades. Oh, well, Carlton, remember. Carlton, Carlton with the salary forever. cap cheating. Melbourne took a long time to recover from the tanking scandal and, and just being, you know, generally hopeless for so long. And, you know, Essendon is really, I think, after being so defiant to the AFL for those years and absolutely, you know, really alienating themselves from every other football club in the way they really tore the competition apart for a couple of years, then became, in the eyes of their supporters, too acquiescent. Um, They settled with all the players who'd been banned and did a really good job of that. Xavier Campbell did such a good job, the CEO, that Gillan McLaughlin saw him as his successor, ahead of more favoured candidates at the time, like Brendan Gale. Well, the AFL um, commissioners 
um, the headhunters, I think, spoken to four or five club CEOs, haven't spoken to Xavier Campbell. So his stocks have dropped. He's commercially seen to have been a very good CEO, but football-wise has made a series of poor decisions. They've lurched from footy boss to footy boss. Ben Rutten, as we sit here on a Tuesday morning, is still the coach, but I very much doubt he will be by the end of today, certainly by the end of the week. And really what has driven this story has been the man who has haunted the entire season, and that's Alistair Clarkson, who at one stage it was reported in the Herald Sun had eight clubs inquiring after him. Essendon has never really dropped out of the race. I spoke about Essendon back in late June as being a contender. What I didn't know was that there were two clubs. There was the David Barham faction on the board, the former um, Channel 10 and Channel 7 head of footy, brilliant producer, director. I've worked with him over many years. Um, started the Big Bash on Channel 10. Is actually consulting to the AFL on uh, to Paramount 10 as part of their bid for the AFL broadcast rights. He's on the board. He's been pushing for an external review and he's wanted Alistair Clarkson in so my you view for a long time. So you didn't time. see the two factions on the, at board level? No, I wasn't. Oh, I knew that there was unrest when Paul Brasher, and we spoke about this a few months ago, announced that internal review that even Xavier Campbell was denying, wasn't aware of. The CEO was clearly not on top of what was going on at board level and if he was, he couldn't control it. But what happened was... Um, David Barham and one male director and three women directors by last week had formed a firm faction. The week before, um, when they when they put forward to the board this internal review, it was very wishy-washy and it didn't really mean anything. Internal reviews never work. Well, it was ridiculous. It was crazy. And it, Paul Brasher was wrong, really. Uh, he signed his own resignation, yes. really, when he announced it. Um, he also had to apologise for re-signing Xavier Campbell and not telling members about it. And Xavier Campbell, an old, very long ago um, Christmas party piece of bad behaviour was dredged up again. And, you know, the club was just yet again, and they were losing and they weren't doing well. The head of the list management, long-term list manager, Adrian Dodoro, had fallen out with the head of footy, Josh Marnie. Oh, both. And, and on the weekend, uh, footage of the, of the breakdown in communication, just the physical absence as Brett Rutten sat on the coaches, Ben Rutten, uh, Rutten yeah, ben, ben Rutten sat on the on the bench with a couple of the players. That was most telling. Yeah, well, of all. We showed some vision last night with um, Hind, and um, that was actually from a couple of weeks ago. But extraordinary stuff. So he's clearly lost the players. What we what I didn't know, and I don't think anybody knew, was that David Barham, I, I think he was going to walk away from the board, was convinced to stay by one of the many wealthy factions that run that club or influence that club. And then last week on Friday, Thursday or Friday, Kevin Sheedy crossed the floor right. as a director. That's big. So that meant David Barham had the numbers. And now they're going after Alistair Clarkson. Poor old North Melbourne. If they miss out on Alistair Clarkson, yet another big name they've missed out on. I don't think he was really in the running anymore for GWS. I don't think he wanted to go up there. And they'd set their sights, I think, on Adam Muse. So Alistair's got two two clubs again. He's played it beautifully, Corrie. Always. Caro, uh a couple of questions, big picture questions. One is, who runs a footy club these days? Is it the director of football? Is it the coach? Uh, Alistair Clarkson, we know from his time in, in at Hawthorne, used to love to have his hands in every piece of the pie, from marketing to media to to uh, not only his, his senior list, but juniors. He, he, he almost like he was seen as the person who ran that club. Is that appropriate? And the second question is, has Alistair Clarkson changed in that year off when he's done a lot of travelling, he's observed teams overseas, he's worked on his his, his um, himself, his executive um, networks and his 
talents as a leader, trying to build his skill set even further there? Is it a different Alistair Clarkson? But who runs a footy club or who should run a footy club? The CEO runs a footy club and that's why what's going, why Essendon is in a mess. So Xavier's job would look? Oh, it's not looking good even though he has a two-year contract, and he might survive if they can get a strong head of footy. I, I can't see Josh Marnie faring well out of this, but some, a few have to. I mean, Adrian Dodoro might go and Marnie survives. I doubt it, though. Um, but if Alistair Clarkson came in, surely he would have his own uh, his own head of football He will bring mind. in some of his own people, but no, no coach should run a footy club. And we saw what happened at Hawthorne after their third flag in a row, Alistair's fourth, in 2013, was it, or 14 and 15, sorry, in 2015. That was the, the last CEO, time we won a premiership. The CEO left and went to run the MCC. The president stood down and went to serve on the commission. The head of footy, ultimately, Chris Fagan, went to coach the Brisbane Lions. And Alistair was, and, and the wrong person was put in charge of the club, Tracy Gordry, who wasn't experienced in footy. And the head of footy wasn't strong enough to stand up to Alistair and the president lasted a year. And I think um, Jeff Kennett came back in after that. They changed the constitution. Alistair did have a too big a say over that period and it was a disaster. Do you think he learned from that error? Which was not necessarily his fault. It was also circumstances, you say. But do you think he's learnt from that experience? I hope so. Uh, he's he's got a very impressive manager, James Henderson, but no one really controls Alistair Clarkson. He's got a fabulous partner, Karen Clarkson, who is a very impressive woman, and that might sound sexist to bring up his partner, but that's what you oh, need. Oh, no, not at all. You, you need a supportive partner who can also be a sounding board and be a devil's advocate at times. I don't know how big a say Karen has, but she's really impressed me as a person and many others. I think that, look, he's still a bit nutty, like he always was, and got nuttier over the years, as all coaches but do. He, but he is he's smart. Got, Surely he would see that that, that, that He suffers from a... Bad case of hubris, as many senior and very successful coaches do, and that won't change. And I've listened to some comments he's made over this year and some of the things he's... I mean, you saw him turn up at Buddy's big ground record-breaking game wearing a swan scarf. I'm sorry. Look at me, look at me. It was just embarrassing. I mean, no-one had the guts to say it at the time, but looking back... You know that was just. So do we run? Do we run the the danger that it's brand Clarkson, not necessarily brand Essendon? Having said all of that, Corey, he's a brilliant coach, and Essendon are in a mess. And outside the club, it looks a disaster. And I, I think only Alistair can save them. But what, but to, so what would be your reporting line? So you're saying the head of footy runs football, the head of footy is the direct report to the board, and the coach would be reporting into the football director? Yeah, no, the football director's a, a nominal thing now and on the board, and I, they shouldn't have too much of a say. People like Mark Rusciuto and Jimmy Bartell, uh, Luke Darcy at the Bulldogs, I think that's a strange role. But isn't it better to just have a, 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 a clear line of, of, of who reports into who? I think everyone should report to the CEO. The CEO is the boss and his direct reports include the head of footy, the coach, the list manager, the head of commercial, COO, whatever. Um, and then they report to the president, of whom now David Barham will be the president. So you've got, you know, in the in the long line of Eddie Maguire, David Koch, James Brayshaw, another media boss, really, mm. although not an on-air amazing, performer as president, who says the media and footy don't mix. <laughs> and, and I think that um, what... 
what is needed is someone strong to work alongside Alistair. And I think Essendon have got every chance. They're an underperforming list. They've got a lot of money. I don't think they should have moved out to Tullamarine where, where they are now at Essendon Fields or wherever they are. It's a, it's a bit of a soulless place, but the facilities are unbelievable. And I think he can make big changes there with the right people around him. And does that include Xavier Campbell in your view? I think he, he must be feeling... He must be in trouble. When you've got a process going on above you and behind your back and you're not even aware of it, I think he's under huge pressure. But he does have a two-year contract. So is one of their wealthy benefactors prepared to pay him out? Is Xavier prepared to, you know, eat humble pie and work and continue to run the club and try and make some good decisions? But if he if he can persuade Alistair Clarkson to come over, then he'll be seen as a hero, won't he? But it won't be him. It'll be David Barham. He's been doing the whole deal. So Xavier's sort of out. Yeah, it's, oh. it's a mess. But you bring in a big-name coach and you buy yourself a couple of years. I mean, people might say, oh, has he still got the magic and the last few years at Hawthorne were terrible? Well, people forget it's not easy to win premierships. People who've worked with Alistair Clarkson, a lot of them now say, oh, you know, he became a nightmare. He was this, he was that, he was difficult. They said the same about Kevin Sheedy. But guess what? A few years after that, they look back and go, actually... He was unbelievably good. Oh, as a Hawthorne supporter, yes, he was unbelievably good, especially after the weekend. Miss Jane is is nodding furiously there. Oh, Hawthorne. Um, well, Cara, that is interesting, and we will watch this space. No doubt this week will unfold quickly in that regard, the Essendon football story, and we are recording this on a Tuesday, so heaven knows all of this could be completely obsolete by Thursday, Caro. I think we need a drink. Let's bring Miles in from Prince Wine Store for the cocktail cabinet. Here we are, Jane's brought the trolley in, Miles is here, we're all here and we're going to talk about wine by the glass. But first of all, Caro and Miles, welcome, Miles Thompson Thank from you. Prince Wine Store. We have a winner of this week's introduction to the wine appreciation course that is running so successfully at Prince Wine Store and it's Caroline Pizzi. Caro, would you like to do the honours and read out Caroline's entry to us? As a student in 1980, writes Caroline, I waitressed at a black tie wine club dinner. On each table was a foil wrap bottle. The guest speaker, at odds with the gathering, wore a brown suit and had huge hands that showed a life of manual work. His fascinating yet humble address finished with an assessment of the masked wine. Having identified the variety, he was the only one to also name the French winery and the vintage. The quiet man was John Brown Sr. from Millowat in northeastern Victoria. I have never forgotten Mr. Brown and my realisation that winemakers are, at heart, farmers. P.S. Little did I know that one day I would be living in the beautiful northeast, married to my own northeastern farmer and growing grapes for Brown Brothers, among others. Oh, wow. wow. Caroline, that's a beautiful story. And oh. way, uh, Caroline has won um, two passes to the Introduction to Wine Appreciation course put on by your very own Prince Wine Store, Absolutely. Miles. That's Sounds like great. she might be able to teach us. Yeah, I was going to say, why is a winemaker going to a wine? Anyway, we're thrilled for you, Caroline. And She's married um, to a winemaker. And Jane, yeah, uh, our wonderful producer, will be in touch. Miles, I wanted to talk about something that um, I was perplexed about the other day. I, it's been a while since I've been out and had a single glass of wine. Usually, if you go out, you might have a cocktail or you might, if you're having dinner, buy a whole bottle. Mm. And I was charged $15 for a glass of Pinot, which was middle order Pinot. And I was just a bit surprised at the price because I thought last time I went and bought a glass of wine, it was about $12. (laughs) Is this normal? Was I ripped off? Where does it stand? And how do you do it at Bullotto? 
Bolotta. Bolotta. Um, it's it's a difficult one to say. Look, you know, I mean, everything's getting more expensive. It's completely normal, Miles. Just and say it like it, it is. It is. I, I think. I think particularly for a Pinot, might not be that you didn't have a good Pinot. I can't. I can't speak to that. So where you know, were you? You went. Value. You, you value went at a pub. Yes, I, I was at a pub. Like a but a, a smart a nice, pub. A smart pub. Yes. Yeah. I mean that depends. You know that's that. But most, I, all pubs these days are smart, aren't they? Really? No, yeah. you can go to pubs and you order there's a plenty that aren't. Yeah, yeah there's, and you order a glass of Chardonnay <laughs> or Pinot, and not only do they charge you twelve dollars a glass or $9 a glass, but they fill it right to the top, whereas if you go to a smart pub, they do a standard pour. Yes, I had is... definitely the smart, the big glass in the smart pub. and the standard there was, no, pour. there was not a lot in the glass, and, <laughs> and it was $15. And I thought, well, it really would be cheaper probably if somebody else was drinking Pinot at the time to have ordered a bottle. Yeah, look, I, th- I think that's that's often the case. Um, yeah, I think $15, $15 for a glass of Pinot these days in Melbourne or, or Australia is probably not not too bad. Um, I mean, we have a full range at Bellotta. You know, I think there's stuff at 12 13 15 18 19 20 We also have stuff that's on Coravin. That's the gas that kind of protects the wine. And they can be quite expensive, you know, $25, $35. But they're very premium wines as well. But, I mean, you can always go next door and grab a bottle. So... I mean, there's lots of options. It's really, it's really difficult to say. You know, some places make deals with one supplier or, you know, so they might get everything from sort of one place and so maybe it's not as interesting. I mean, we just, we pick whatever we want from whatever we like from whoever we want. So so if we were going to your place we, for lunch... We're pretty lucky. We if, can just... If Carol and I wanted a glass of wine, what, what would you be suggesting we have a glass of? Oh well, I have I have a couple of things that that's that we've just put on the wine list there. So the first one in a white is called the Yeah Yeah Blanc, which is from La Violetta. I think they're called. How do you in, spell Yeah Yeah? As like, in Y E Y E Yeah Yeah. Clearly a white wine. It's a white wine. It's a blend of I think like Riesling, Chardonnay, and a couple of other bits and pieces. So it has a lovely sort of aromatics. I actually really love these types of blends. So it has the sort of aromatics from the Riesling and other bits and then has a bit of structure and depth and sort of plushness from, from the Chardonnay and just kind of it's got a nice interplay of those sort of lifted aromatics and a bit of richness as well. So I think for, for right now, this sort of weather, it's a great sort of textural drinking white. And how much does that go for a glass? 30, uh, for a glass, I don't know, $34 a bottle. But I just got the bottle prices for you today. Okay. <laughs> and what about, a, have you got a red that you're serving by the glass? Yeah, we. Uh, it's it's new for us. It's actually a wine we import and it's uh, called Hobo Wine Camp and it's one of their uh, cabernets from Anderson Valley. And Hobo, is a, he's a, a young winemaker that's, uh, you know, sort of cut his teeth in that sort of cooler part of California, so that sort of Sonoma Coast kind of area. And, you know, used to make wine from, you know, went to travel in France and make wine there and here and there and bits and pieces. He doesn't own any vineyards. He manages a bunch of vineyards. He leases a bunch of vineyards. And then he works with growers who are organic or sustainable. That's his whole ethos. He doesn't use foil caps on his wines because it's just waste. He uses natural cork because it's um, 
renewable. What an interesting uh, concept. It's all he doesn't grow it himself. Everything's recycled. Hence, glass. The, hence the word so hobo. hobo. Mm. That's where it all comes from. So he was just like, there's no need for me to own vineyards and I can pick and choose what I want, when I want, and what I want to make. Wow, wow, interesting. So it's something like and, a 260 exactly... mile spread of vineyards that and he has Anderson from Valley. north to sort of south. And they're all, they're so a lot of blends, obviously. Uh, like straight Cabernets, Infandels. This is a Cabernet, so cooler climate Cabernet, so more like you'd sort of think something from. Uh, maybe from the, like the Yarra Valley rather than the bigger sort of styles coming out of Margaret River, a little bit more of that what we call like luncheon claret. And the Anderson Valley is in California. Anderson Valley's California sort of, you know, towards the coast and a bit north, so I think Napa? that's right. No, Napa's a bit sort of further in and it's a bit doesn't have that cooling influence of, of the coast, so Napa can be quite warm unless you're on the sort of mountains there, which all the best sort of Napa vineyards are, but all the flats in in Napa can be quite quite hot, so you get those big, huge, rich sort of cabernets. And this is not that. This is a lovely sort of mid-weight, elegant, you know, nice fine tannins on it. Great. Again, like we call it a luncheon claret. It's that. Hobo. Hobo wine camp, yeah. Great what, name. It makes a bunch of different stuff. And what's that, a bottle? That's $50. Great. And so we can, our potties can access these two drops via the princewinestore.com.au website. Absolutely. And once we're there, what do we do? You just put in your code MEWS when you've got your wines in your cart. Good It'll give you 10% off. Yeah. Or you and can go to the, or you can go to Bellotta and have a glass of each and try it and see if you want to buy or, it. Or three glasses. We <laughs> or might, three. Laurie, and you can complain <laughs> about the cost and I'll say, welcome to the real world. <laughs> yeah. So that's Yeah Yeah Blanc and Hobo are uh, the... Hobo uh, Wine Camp. Wine Camp Cabernet, Cabernet from the Anderson Valley in the US. They're Anderson? Great Alexander. Okay. Anyway. Oh, well, we'll check that. Um, that could be Sorry. your apology next week, yeah. Miles, because I had a few this week, so it's your turn. Um, that sounds <laughs> great. Thank you. And don't forget, everybody, to call into the Prince Wine Store. And are we still running our wine appreciation course? Yes, Jane is going. We are. So That's great. how do we, we enrol in that? So, Corrie, all you have to do is find the link in the show notes. Tell us your little story about your favourite wine experience from past or uh, more recently, and you could be a winner. Great. Sounds fantastic. Well, uh, Miles, you'll be meeting Caroline Pizzi, our winner for this week. And thank you to Prince again for supporting not only the podcast, but also this segment and the wine appreciation course. It's a ripper. Oh, we have so many entries. The mailbag is full. Yeah, that's Jane great. Had to, Jane had to get four people to help her up with it this week. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> it's such a fun course. It's very relaxed and we have food from Bellotta and, oh, you know, it's not, do it. you know, there's no... Obviously, there's no exams or anything like that. It's very much... Oh, that's, that's a relief. I know. Very much just sit there. Or some people think that they're going to have to, like, answer some things at the end. But no, we're just, you know, relax. Sounds like sit, exactly the sort wine. of course we should do, Exactly. Cara. You should do it. Well, Miles, I've got, home, I've got some homework for you as we say goodbye. Oh, excellent. Next week, we're talking all things spring. Excellent. Wines to drink in the spring. Love it. I'm putting together a spring mixed dozen for September, so... And speaking of spring, which look has at the Jane's yeah, yeah, Blanc in it actually? Oh, it, well, that's good to know. I might order the spring special. Look at Jane's wattle that she's bought in. That's just yeah, about beautiful. the first I've seen. Gorgeous. Oh. Thank you, Miles. Thank you, Miles Thompson from the Prince Wine Store. And we'll see you next week. See you then. Caro, on to BSF. And uh, just a hello again to our sponsors, Red Energy and Prince Wine Store, and thank you again for their support of this segment and our podcast. You have a book, and it's an oldie, but a goodie. It is, and it brings me to the topic of books that have been banned and how amusing it is to read these books 
years and years and years later and go, oh, my Lord, why were they banned? I mean, they're almost a great historic reference to what life must have been like. But I was um, rifling around a secondhand bookshop in Queenscliff earlier this year and I found Henry Miller's Tropic of Cancer. Um, I'd heard of the Tropic of Cancer and the Tropic of Capricorn. I'd never read either. Um, I've got to say it was a difficult read. Um, it's, there's a lot of philosophical musings um, it's pretty sexy from memory. Yes, and and the, you know it, there's homosexual themes, which I guess was one of the reasons it was banned at the time. It was published in 1934. Um, it was raved about by literary society at the time. I think Samuel Beckett said it was a momentous event in the history of modern writing. But it was banned in the UK, Great Britain and America for another 30 years. So it wasn't published in America until 1964. It's basically, it's semi-autobiographical. It's about Henry Miller sort of arriving in Paris in the 1930s, about his life, about the artists and weirdos and freaks that he becomes friends with and, and the life he leads. Um, about his own, you know, then scandalous lifestyle. And it's basically um, about an American in Paris, but not like the musical, basically rejecting everything that's conservative and normal about, well, what was considered normal back in 1930, about life back then. It, it opens in Italy. It's beautifully written, but um, and the dialogue is absolutely fantastic. And some of the women and men he meets at the parties he goes to and... So when you say it's difficult, what do you mean? Well, not a lot really happens. And like a lot of books that are written, you know, almost a decade ago, a century ago, it's just a different form of writing and you just have to get used to it. Once you get used to it and you sign up to it and you go with it and you think, like when I've read um, Portnoy's Complaint, and um, was the Virgin and the Gypsy banned? No, um, Lady Chatterley's <coughs> Lady Lover. Lady Chatterley's Lover was banned, of yeah, course. Which I studied at school, and um, and I and I just remember the the scenes were, it's it's like people say sometimes there's there's nothing sexier than a woman who's fully clothed, but perhaps you see the hint of a décolletage or an ear or a neck or an ankle or something rather than the full blown nude. And Lady Chatterley's Lover, it's never really spelt out what's happening, but it's all of this. Uh, innuendo and and um, um, oh, I don't know. It just it, it just captures, I think, that beautiful uh, sexual relationship that the aristocrat has with her chauffeur, um, absolutely brilliantly. Well, like, like all you know, brilliant novels, it's it and films. It's nuanced. This book, The Tropic of Cancer, and in the end, I guess what it is is a book that really celebrates you know, a real life, a life well lived, a life rejecting all that is conservative and all that is correct. And it's about making errors and making what seemed to be terrible errors against society at the time and how much more fun it is and how that's the way you have to live. You have to lead an honest life. So I can really recommend The Tropic of Cancer. I don't know if you can find it in bookshops anymore. Did you have Henry Miller in yeah, your shop? Yeah, we did. You know, you can still – and there are many versions of it. So choose one with a lovely cover is always uh, my tip in that regard. Um, Caro, that is interesting. That is Henry Miller's Tropic of Cancer. And now on to screen. And this is a recommendation that you gave me. I don't know when you had the time coming back from Sweden and everything that you have on on the weekend, but you devoured a series on Apple TV called Slow Horses. Well, I started me watching it, it in March, I, April, oh, actually. I, oh, I didn't realise. Yeah, and then I, and I didn't finish it. I just sort of 
lost it or, you know, life got busy. And I had a few nights, I don't know, um, over a weekend. The, the first weekend I was back. And once you, you know, the first episode is brilliant, isn't it? But it, oh, it gets better and better. It's it's just such a great series. So it's um it's set in contemporary times. It's based on the spy novel by Mick Heron, H-E-R-R-O-N. Mick Heron is a really well-known, I wouldn't say B-grade, but he's he's a kind of a, um, in that Daniel Silver sort of frame of, um, of writing uh, novels. This is a spy franchise. He's written a few books related to the slow horses. And it's about a bunch of disgraced... Uh, uh, spooks, disgraced spies, who who are banished to a place called Slough House. Hence, slow horses. <laughs> or slow? Is that how I? No, I, I should think pronounce it's, it. No, I think it's Slough. I yeah. think it's Slough. Yep. Yes, yeah, so but their nickname is the slow the horses. The slow horses, and and no, and nobody wants them. They're on the they're on the scrap heap, and they're led brilliantly. I think cast Gary Oldman, who's overweight. As our friend Trudy said, you know, one more cigarette, and we were going to all have lung cancer just watching him. But he's a bit grubby and a bit used by, and he belches and farts, yeah, and, and he's just he's really a disgusting character. And physically. it unfolds in this first series because the second series is coming to air soon. Um, in this first series why he was banished. He was a very good spy. He was in Berlin at the time of the uh, of Glasnost and the Berlin Wall coming down uh, and there's a really interesting backstory with him about why he was banished to Slough House. Uh, and he calls, calls his um, brigade um, he calls MI5 effing useless, has complete contempt for, for traditional uh, spy networks in the UK. And um, and he just um, brings together this absolutely disparate band of weirdos. Inclu- well, he doesn't really bring them together. Oh, that's they sort of foisted upon him. But he has a connection, you know. Including he has a- the wife of one of his former colleagues who... You don't really understand what's going on until the very last episode, do you? So fantastic. About the history of what he did. But the the beginning is really brilliant. I'm not going to give anything away, but potties don't think, oh, we'll just turn it on and go and get a cup of tea. Just really just watch the first 10 or 15 minutes where one of the central characters who's in, uh, who he's one of the slow horses, River Cartwright, he's played by Jack Loden, uh, a young spy on the up and coming. He has a very famous grandfather, David, who's played by Jonathan Price, was also a spy, and just watch that first 15 minutes and do not miss a beat. It's a great series. I think are there six shows in There are, and, and the, the, the great two-hander is really between Gary Oldman and Kristen Scott Thomas, who just gets more beautiful the older she gets. That skirt she wears through the entire episode with that belt, I just want to know where she got it. Well, isn't it interesting? She plays the, MI, the leader of MI5, Diana Taverner, and, in fact, Judy Dench, of course, was known as M. So it's interesting to see these wonderful British actresses playing these uh, heads of agencies with such um, guts. And the story is about the kidnapping of a young Saudi or Arab, UK... Pakistani. Resident, Pakistani, sorry, um, who is a, a, a British citizen. And there is a big story. And he's been kidnapped by some right-wing former, or some current, I think mainly former soldiers, who've been in Afghanistan. And, oh, it is just extraordinary. 
great. How it's a really unfolds. great series. Thank you very much putting me on to Slow Horses. It's gripping. I can't wait for series two. Yes, I think that's coming out in a couple of months. And Corrie, now you've been cooking as well as watching telly. I um, have. And so hosting and <laughs> we, playing golf. Well, we had our history Launching club. a literary festival. I know, it's been a busy weekend. Let's not talk about the golf score, but uh, great day on Sunday is all I can say. Beautiful weather. So we had uh, history club, as everybody has heard me talk about. Uh, we go to each other's houses and like a book club, we talk about periods of history and it was our turn to host and we had it down at the beach and we turned it into a big Saturday night with uh, Sunday golf. And the theme of this month's discussion, Cara, was Buddhism, which is vegetarian based. And so I brought out a couple of curry recipes. There was a bit of angst about the fact that Buddhists don't drink and don't eat meat. And so we decided that we would also, Buddhists do believe in the self-divine and having a good time. So we thought we would just include the wine and we would add the chicken to one of the curries, which I did. This so is- you weren't Buddhist at all? No, we had other other vegetarian dishes. Yeah. <laughs> well, we always serve veg and salad. No, I know. Doesn't Look, there was, a, there was a little bit of a pushback from the gang, so I, I, I thought, well, we'll just do one protein dish, and this is a ripper. It's Donna Hayes fragrant green chicken curry. Corrie, I'm thrilled you're doing it, but you said to me you wanted to do a Buddhist recipe. This is not Buddhist. <laughs> It's a chicken curry, which is fantastic, and I'd love to learn how to cook it. It is really beautiful. So it's um, it's uh, the, uh, Miss Jane will put these on the show notes, of course, and you can also Google Donna Hayes fragrant green Thai curry and have a look at it. But um, I was making it for twelve people, so I'm not even going to give you the. Uh, I just uh, it, her recipe that we will show serves four, so I just tripled everything. I also added into it green beans cut up, which was delicious, and I served it with a potato. Oh, this is the this is the real one, Carol. You're going to love this. You know, you talked about Alice Zavlaski yep. the other day. Alice in praise of friends. veg. Yes. She has a new book coming out in a month. I was given an advanced copy by the publishers and I cooked something out of it. I'm not allowed yet because the book hasn't come out. I'm not allowed yet to give you the recipe, but in a couple of weeks I will give you this amazing potato curry recipe. But all up, it was a really great meal. I think a Thai chicken curry is one of the easiest things to make, particularly if you buy your own green curry paste rather than making it yourself. Does, does Donna give you a green curry paste recipe? She does give you a green curry paste recipe. I did not abide by that. I went to the supermarket and bought a quality one. It's flack. <laughs> Oh, sorry. I had a bit on on the weekend. But it's just... Thigh fillets or breast fillets? um, No, I just use thigh fillets and, um, you know, the cans of coconut milk, chicken stock, fish sauce and lime leaves if you can find them. A bit hard to find them. And coriander and... Corrie, I've got a tree in my garden. I've told you. Oh, I forgot to cover. Macrate lime leaves. Roasted cashews uh, for the top. um, And I put in extra chilies, I have to say, extra green chilies because we do like it rather hot. And decorative... Decorate it with lime wedges if you can afford them because they are not inexpensive. I'm going to come over and rob your tree next time. Now you've given me the given me the in. So that is a great recipe. Highly recommended. And also, you know, Caro, lovely for winter, but I tell you what, I've made this uh, recipe before in the in the middle of summer. I think there's something rather lovely about having a hot curry in summer. So. Oh, summer or winter. And it goes down really well with things like beer. 
Yes. Or gin and tonic. Well, Tell me, is it out of a particular book or is it just online? You no, it? it is out of a book. I have the book at home, but I have so many Donna Hayes. I was I was in no mood to try and go through them all, so I just Googled her and up it came. So well, that was easy. That was BSF for Red Energy, powered by Snowy Hydro, a leader in renewable energy. Isn't the time you called Red Energy on 131806? Now, Corrie, you're grumpy. I am, Carol. I have noticed, I don't know whether you've noticed this in the last few weeks, but each time I see a male politician addressing a press conference, uh, usually in an outdoor setting, Mm -hmm. there is a nodding woman standing behind him. Yes, I haven't really noticed that. (laughs) What about if there's a woman doing a press conference? Is there a nodding man? I haven't noticed that so much. Look... I don't watch the news often, but I did seem to capture uh, about four in a row last week. And the last night when I noticed it again, I actually wrote it down in the same news service. The first story was the Tasmanian Premier, Jeremy Rockliffe, who was being grilled about the AFL deal. And the woman standing behind him, I don't know who she was. She might have been a cabinet minister, I'm not sure, nodding her head profoundly. As Jeremy Rockliffe is talking about building stands and what, football might mean to Tasmanians and she's nodding sensibly. And then almost in the next item, the woman standing behind Peter Dutton as he was commenting on the China-Taiwan situation also nodding her head. Now I apologise to the ladies concerned because I don't know your names and I don't know your roles and I'm sure you have incredibly important roles but it's just interesting that I have seen in the past week a lot of women standing behind men, male politicians and, I don't, and even in Parliament, now I know there are a lot of women, particularly on one side of the House, uh, and, and inevitably they are sitting behind. But it was interesting after the whole Brittany Higgins saga last year how, how, the, um, how the, gov- the then government of Scott Morrison actually moved a few women down to sit behind himself and the front bench. Anyway, it's just an observation. It doesn't really make me grumpy, so it's probably not appropriate for this section. But I just it sounds like it does. <laughs> I, just, right. I just noticed a phenomenon. So if anybody else has noticed the nodding woman, let me know what you think. Well, keep your eye out for nodding men. Men, everyone too, and just yes. see if Corrie's not sort of, you know, have being, a gender imbalance. Being a bit selective here. Do you and, think? Yeah, I think you are getting grumpy, and that's absolutely fine <laughs> if it's only going one way. And well, Corrie, that's a good, um, a good uh, launching pad for six quick questions for Red Energy, and I'll open. I want to hear your favourite Lillian Frank story, the late, great Lillian Frank, or oh, your favourite one anyway, because yeah. there are plenty. I love her so much. And, in fact, at one stage, years and years ago, she said to me, you should be my goddaughter. Um, and I and I was very sorry that I never was. I loved Lillian deeply, and she was a huge contributor to all things uh, charity and social and cultural in Melbourne. But my favourite one actually relates to um, when my mum came down from interstate. She was visiting, and Francesca must have been about four or five months old, able to sit up a little bit in a stroller and uh, we went to the Turak village for a shop which is what mum loved to do and go and visit all the dress shops that used to be in the Turak village and we dropped into Lillian's salon to say hello and Lillian was thrilled to see mum and the baby and we went next door to the cafe and as we chatted and Lillian was cooing over Francesca this beautiful little baby as she was talking to us she was scooping the cappuccino froth and chocolate froth off her cappuccino and feeding it to Francesca which might not sound like a big sin, but when you're a first-time mother and you are sterilising even your hands to touch your baby and you're told only give them breast milk until they're four or five months old. (laughs) And there's Lil just... And Francesca, you can imagine the baby's face. 
This is the best thing ever. Loving and, it. And Checker still says that's how her coffee addiction began. But it was a very cute moment because Lillian, and Lillian's looking at my face going, oh, darling, she's fine, she's fine. It's only milk. <laughs> Whoa, okay. Anyway, I loved that and I loved her generosity and um, loved to Jackie and Richard and all the family. She um, was a fabulous woman. Absolutely fabulous woman. And, you know, like anyone who is a bit different, you know, she had her detractors and yet she just outshone them all. I remember going to a hairdressing salon, you know, to see mum if mum was there. Or Look, she was just a, a leader, you know, a charitable leader, a social leader. She was just wonderful. When when um, my dad was editor of The Age and they introduced the Minus Children's Appeal, which you'll remember was a big fundraiser for Kew Cottages to redevelop them, he had a meeting with Lillian the first time he'd ever met her and um, he, she he, he, they, she walked out of his office. They were firm friends and she galvanised galvanized a whole community in Melbourne to, to give money to what was an incredibly successful appeal. So I think she's a ripper. Now, Caro, my question to you is, has Gillan McLaughlin mistimed his departure from the AFL CEO role, I think I think he has. I think that um, when, when is he, went, he due to go again? Well, and when he gets all this stuff done. So it was announced in I think was it March that Gillan McLaughlin or April would be stepping down, but his chairman Richard Goiter made it clear that he had a lot of stuff to get done before he finished the new broadcast deal, the decision about whether to launch a nineteenth team in Tasmania and grant Tasmania an AFL license the men's CBA, the launch of the first 18-team competition in AFLW. A lot of jobs. None of those deals have actually been done yet. We don't know when or how they're going to get done. I've heard that the Commission have asked Gillen to stay on a bit longer. He has said that he doesn't have a job that he's going to immediately, so he's left it open-ended so he can get all this stuff done. Um, I just think the longer it goes on and stories have broken, such as the... um, you know, the story about, you know, dreadful harassment, sexual harassment even of women umpires across all umpiring levels in the AFL down to community umpiring. You know, the Adelaide Camp scandal coming out again with the Eddie Betts book and the fact that we now know the AFL knew a lot of these details but didn't see fit to actually punish Adelaide, you know, didn't have any really Indigenous people investigating this, only sort of white cops really from their former white cops from their investigative commission. I just think that the clubs are getting frustrated. It's as though only Gillen can do these deals and you sort of go, well, if Andrew Dillon, his number two, is going to be his replacement, can't he take over? It, and there's, you know, some clubs are worried that, you know, there'll be a big rich TV deal, which makes AFL look great against NRL, but will it be good for the game? Is it going to disadvantage? A lot of unfinished business, it sounds like. Non-Victorian clubs. Well, I just think the longer you go on, and, you know, he's been a very good CEO, a brilliant CEO in so many ways, but it can only get worse for him. I mean, look, he could in the next two weeks pull off every single one of those deals and we'll all go, well, isn't he amazing? But I just think it's – I don't think it's the right way to do business myself. Corrie, what news item surprised you this week? Dog attacks have increased by two-thirds in Melbourne city councils since 2018. And these are dogs attacking other dogs. And a dog trainer in the Sunday Age article said uh, that the problem was mainly because of these pandemic puppies. Remember when everybody was trying to buy a puppy and the prices were going through the roof like gold? Um, These puppies have grown up in a lockdown environment. They haven't learned to adjust socially to other dogs. They are poorly adjusted dogs. They lack training. Their owners are now not working from home but 
back at work in the office, a lot of people, and the dogs are going out for a walk and um, attacking other dogs because they can't cope. Or conversely, they're so terrified, they're shivering in a corner and they're easy prey for one of the more predatory breeds around, not naming any names, Rottweilers. So it's a, anyway. I found it a really interesting story. That's a, I'm Port not Phillip, laughing. That's a terrible story. Port Phillip uh, Council has already recorded 94 attacks this year, higher than the entire count of 2021, 2020, and 2019. And um, the other amazing fact was in this, this in Wyndham, the volume of attacks has jumped more than 285 percent. So I just think that if you have your dog on a lead, that is a huge help. Try not to take your dog off the lead if you've got a particularly anxious dog or a vicious dog, conversely. Yeah, it's a real problem, Caro. The Cornish walkers got together without you yesterday, as you know, because you couldn't make it down. few dogs? Well, one of Trudy's dogs (laughs) ran towards another dog and this woman, was her dog a staffy? Or, no, no, it wasn't a pit bull. It was maybe, anyway, she shouted at Trudy, control your dog, and had a very bad look on her face. And you know how Trudy's pretty mild-mannered? Trudy said to her, the look on your face is worse. I don't know whether she said your dogs or my dogs. <laughs> Anna and I just kept walking. like, And and Trudy came back up. But then, then the woman had another crack back at her. I just strong-armed Trudes and said, let's keep walking. It was almost an incident. <laughs> anyway. I'm glad I wasn't there. Caro, what event is making you nervous this week? You never get nervous. Oh, I've got a I've got several speaking engagements, but oh, this is one it's that time of the year. No, but no, this is one constant blow waves that I'm doing for Ross Stevenson and he holds it every year and in previous years I've been unable to do it because of travel or whatever. It's a love letter to football and it, it's going to raise funds for rural prostate cancer. So it's a great event. Great cause. Others reading their love letter to football include Gillen McLaughlin. And oh, you can ask him about how's he doing with his CEO so tick list. Many unbelievable people have done this. And Ross himself, you know, launched this many years ago when he read a love letter to football in the MCC members' dining room. And I'm, I feel the weight of pressure to do the You know how to, to write a good, good story. You start with an anecdote, Carol. Well, you, there's only one way to start it. You have to say, dear football, I love you. Oh. And that's your opening line. Is it the Sharon or the game? Well. <laughs> you could actually spin it on its head and do the do the ball. Maybe you can dear, write it for dear me. Dear football, I love the way Cor- your leather feels oh. in my hands. Oh, dear me. I think I'm, this is a job for me. Corrie, I asked you this last week. How many books have you packed for Byron Bay? Well, I thought you might like to know I've whittled it down now. Two. Three. Oh, well done. That's sensible. So um, I have never read this. It was on the shelf, The Hand That First Held Mine by Maggie O'Farrell. Oh, it's brilliant. I know. I can't wait. It's brilliant. And then and then I have two novels. They're Prepare pr- to cry. Okay, thanks. Proof copies of books that are about to come out, so I want potties to make a note of these. One, I think, I mean, I think they're good. I haven't read them yet, but we love Camilla Shamsi, who a few years ago won the Women's Prize for her brilliant book, Home Fire, which we talked about on the podcast. She has a new novel coming out called, called Best of Friends. Can't wait. Set in London, a friendship between two Pakistani women. Can't wait, can't wait. And the other one is by Sophie Cunningham. Many people will know Sophie. She is a Melbourne writer. She does a lot of um, 
uh, moderating at writers' festivals and uh, she writes for non-fiction for various publications, her novel, This Devastating Fever. And I've started it and it's a back and forth between a contemporary writer who's investigating the life of Leonard Woolf with the objective of writing a book about him and his relationship with Virginia Woolf. And um, it goes back and forth in time. I think it's going to be a real ripper, but I haven't finished it yet. So those three are in my bag well, you'll have plenty to review when you come back. And what's this week's amazing fact, Caro? Well, I think she is an amazing fact. Peggy O'Neill has served as the Richmond president for 10 years. He finished, He hosted her last home game against Hawthorne on Sunday. So she Let's fin- not talk about that, Caroline. Well, it was nice for Peggy. Would have been nice if one member of the AFL Commission had turned up to. Anyway, that's another story. You are joking. Well, they don't turn up anywhere. I mean, they, no one but went to the Peggy, Sydney. But it's Peggy's last hurrah. Look, I don't think there was personal invitations, but there's always a standing invitation. Anyway, that's not my amazing fact. This is a young woman born in Kalani, West Virginia, from a coal mining family who took herself off to law school, had never really seen anywhere outside Kalani until she was, you know, quite, you know, she was a, a young girl. She came, she um, met an Australian on a backpacking holiday in Greece, married. That marriage didn't last, but she did. She lived in Richmond. She fell in love with the Richmond Football Club for no other reason than she loved Richmond, the town, the village, and she loved the Tigers. It was sort of an unusual way that she ascended to the presidency. If only you'd gone to Glenferry Road, Peggy. Two men, um, Morris O'Shaughnessy. We wouldn't be in this mess we're in now. Who was a respected businessman, and Malcolm Speed were both vying for the job. Gary March thought that Peggy would be a better contender. I mean, of all the unlikely women, the unlikely people to preside, as my father did many years ago over the Richmond Football Club, it was a lawyer, a self made lawyer from West Virginia who knew nothing about football when she came to live in Melbourne in the city of Richmond, which where she still lives and still loves. She is now the Vice-Chancellor of RMIT. She won the Melbourneian or Victorian of the Year a couple of years ago. She has an Order of Australia. She came on the podcast. She's been on the podcast. She advised the Rudd government on superannuation. She's just been extraordinary. And, of course, she led Richmond's resurgence back into, you know, back to be the number one club. You know, they've got more members than any other club. They have a lot of money. They paid off a multi-million dollar debt. She didn't do all that on her own, but she was a president. Richmond won three flags while she was there. I don't think they're going to win a fourth this year, but they're still in it. They'll at least be playing finals again in Peggy's last year, which is fantastic. She stared down not one but two... Um, threats to her board, challenges to her board back in 2016 and emerged with the Premiership Cup the following year. I mean, you couldn't script this story. It's an extraordinary story. And now there are four women presidents in the AFL, but when Peggy did it, it was unheard of. Mm. So what is it? She doesn't... She's not exactly, you know, you would meet Peggy O'Neill in the street and you wouldn't say, what a dynamic, amazing person, but she is. She's a quiet achiever. She's a silly person, Caro, and I think that's a really great tribute to uh, to Peggy. And what, you know, so many young women have now flourished as a result of her mentorship and her championing of What's she women. going to do apart from sitting in the outer or the members watching the, well, her beloved Richmond? The RMIT job is fairly big. She's on a lot of boards. She'll be very busy and I'm sure she'll be still going to watch the Tigers and having a champagne when they win.
Well done, Peggy. Hope you enjoy uh, the last hurrah over the next few weeks. Thank you to our producer, Jane Neald, who is out of her sickbed, back on board. Thank goodness, Jane, because we just missed you. We miss you. We don't know what to do. We flounder without you and your beautiful flowers. And thank you, of course, to our podcast sponsors, Red Energy, 100% Australian Electricity and Gas, and, of course, Prince Wine Store. Don't forget to visit princewinestore.com.au and click on the Don't Shoot the Messenger page for all of Miles's recommendations and those special discounts. You can keep in touch with Carol and I via our Instagram account, which is Don't Shoot Pod, and, of course, on Facebook as well. And if you want to get our show notes delivered into your inbox, just hit the sign-up button on our Facebook page, or if you're having any trouble, contact Jane. And, in fact, any emails, any, any comments you'd like to make, anything at all, just contact feedback at don'tshootpod.com.au. Don't forget to listen to our Dear Caro and Corrie Dilemmas Solving segment, which is a special bonus episode each week. And, Caro, after all that, what do we say? Don't shoot the messenger. This podcast is proudly supported by Red Energy, awarded CanStar's Most Trusted Energy Providers nationally 2021 and 22. That's Red Energy. And Prince Wine Store, bringing wine enthusiasts the greatest wine in the world. Visit princewinestore.com.au.